The time has come to get ready for the 2022 World Cup. And what better way to prepare than by revisiting the World Cup's most amazing goals? I'm Brian Phillips. I'm making a podcast about the history of the Men's World Cup, told through the stories of 22 iconic goals. The show's called 22 Goals. It's out now on the Ringer Podcast Network, and we're having so much fun. This episode is brought to you by Walmart Plus. With a Walmart Plus membership, you save on everything you need to stay entertained. A Paramount Plus subscription is included to watch all your favorite shows. Plus, there's free delivery and even gas discounts. So when you're done streaming, you can hit the town and find entertainment in the real world, too. Save on all this plus much more with Walmart Plus. Start a free 30-day trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only. Separate registration required. $35 order minimum. See walmart.com slash plus for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he now knows how he'll plan his funeral. It's Andy Greenwald! Pure class. In the Phyrexian (laughs) tradition, pure class. Andy, a special episode of The Watch. Uh, We will be joined again for the third time. The Return of the Jedi, Tony Gilroy, will come through and talk to us about the finale for Andor going forward from this very second. We'll be full spoilers for the last episode of Andor of the season and the full season itself. It's so great to talk to you. Including that I won't be on that interview. I've been written out of the the canon. You have not. You can just jump on. You can call in from a payphone if you want to, and I would have you. Okay. You know, there's no okay. limit on what we would do. No, we have Thanksgiving travel going on, obviously, and Tony was nice enough to make some time for us again. And it's just been a great experience to have his insight into the making of the show and, and to, to the incredible work that he did on it. So, Andy, we've got the entire full season. Um, yep. I'll start with a softball. What'd you think? Mm-hmm. Well, I thought it was amazing. And I have to I have to confess something. This is a holiday season. You know, I'm I'm gonna be be as tender as a, a sous vide turkey breast when I say we've been doing this pod for a while and we have really loved a lot of uh big ticket franchise IP stuff. Yeah. We've been very critical of a lot of it. We've also shared the microphones and the cameras with people like our good friend Mallory, who have wept in front of us because of the beauty of certain scenes or certain characters on Game of Thrones or what have you. And I adore Mallory. She's a good friend and a, a brilliant thinker, writer, and editor and host. But in those moments, I've, I, I haven't connected with her because I never felt that way about Game of Thrones. That's not a surprise to anyone. I choked up twice in this finale from characters that I met 10 weeks ago. And I I don't know what else to say other than that. Like when Cassian is reconnected with his buddy, whose name I still don't know, but he looks great in that funereal Ferrix red. 
and he delivers Marva's deathbed message to him. And it ends by saying that she said, I I love you more than anything you could ever do. It got real dusty. Yeah. It got real dusty. It's beautiful writing. It's beautiful emotion. It's beautiful character building and storytelling and world building. And it's what all this is for. And I can't believe it's in a Star Wars show. And I would just like to say to Mallory, I get it now. And uh, happy Thanksgiving. Because this landed something so beautiful to me and something that I didn't even know I was missing in my life. I think I would have been totally fine going through life really enjoying this stuff. Yeah. But never having to get pulled over by it. Like, I think that there is a little bit of like holding things at an arm distance that comes with watching tons of TV and movies every year and kind of seeing some of the same tricks get played out over and over again. And also like a kind of deep understanding, like maybe this was made for a kid who's 13, you know, or a kid Mm -hmm. who's 18 or somebody who has a deeper relationship with the mythology or the lore or the original source texts that you are, you're watching. And I, you know, like, I think that this was just the perfect marriage of material and writer, you know, and perhaps because it was something where they just let the writer rock, you know, and even the stuff that is connective tissue to larger IP. So for instance, the thing that fucked me up was the last scene was Mm -hmm. Cassie and going to Luthen and saying, kill me or take me in, which is just an incredible line. But the thing is, is that we know that this does not work out for him, you know, like, and that this sort of gesture towards needing to belong to something, whether it's like a surrogate family or a revolution or whatever, by the time we meet this guy in Rogue One, it's not going great. He's pretty disillusioned with all of it, you know? And I think the fact that Tony can work forwards and backwards and side to side, and he can use the whole field in that way is sort of what gives it those layers. And that's the promise of all this stuff is that down the line, you can have something where you, if you are doing a prequel or if you are doing a side story, if you Mm -hmm. are doing a sequel, that the cumulative experience that people have with these characters and with these stories winds up making an even bigger impact when you have a moment like that. And I rarely feel that. I rarely feel that. Like even in flashback scenes in just normal television shows. I'm never like, oh, so that's what it was like with his dad. And that's why he doesn't trust people. You know, like, but there was something like heartbreaking about yeah. this guy who's like, okay, like I was an orphan. This is the only person who's ever really loved me. She's gone. And I now know that what she wanted more than anything in the world was to change the world. And so now I am willing to say, if you don't want me to be a part of that, then you might as well kill me because my life won't have any meaning other than that. But even in the intervening years between when season one of Andor ends and Rogue One begins and this guy is a bleary-eyed hitman, essentially, like, think about what's going to happen in season two. It just gets so exciting to even consider, like, the idealism that, like, he loses over the course of this story and regains by his sacrifice in Rogue One to make everything that happens in Star Wars going forward possible. There's two kinds of inevitability in, in storytelling. There's inevitability that, that feels like the period at the end of a sentence, and there's inevitability that feels like an exclamation point. And there was a moment earlier in the episode where the kid, the son of the mechanic, who was last we last saw with Dr. Horst or Gorst or whatever his name is, and he's looking at a hologram of his dad, and he's building what we correctly assume to be a bomb. And... I'm struck by the way to that moment with a, you know, not even a tertiary character being like, 
this kid is going to screw up, quote unquote, that, that's me saying that, his life because of what they did to his father and the cycle of violence will perpetuate and it's never going to be free. And it's just this, this burden of it. It's inevitable that the son would behave this way, right? But it is deeply meaningful and impactful because of the way the story is told. And as someone who has been on this podcast many times and railed against the boundaries that are placed around stories that are prequels, the way that it stomps on stakes and stomps on our investment and our hopes and our ability to, to see forward or for there to be questions, this was a masterclass in showing what else is possible within those confines. Now, Better Call Saul did this as well, and it's a testament to this show again that we're talking about it alongside one of the great dramas of the last few years that was not that was burdened with some continuity but not like Star Wars. Yeah. Um but that sense, right, that there's so much pathos now in emotion and story within Cassian Andor's last years on not Earth, on many, many planets and across the galaxy. That's amazing. And it's amazing writing to be like, there's so much to mine here and there's so much to show you what can be done with life, however many years a fictional character has in it. It's the opposite of a lot of the IP stuff we've seen, which is why I always find a hard time. I, I find it hard to praise the show and just stay within the show because I feel very moved and inspired by what it means for all of the other shows that are being made and that are getting lumped into the same pot. With yeah, it. I mean, I think that you've touched on that a couple of times where it's both intimidating and inspirational. It's intimidating to think of like doing anything and, and like doing it at the level that Tony does it at and that his his collaborators do it at. But it's also inspirational because it's like if you take the thing that you're doing incredibly seriously and have... Mm -hmm. Obviously, the budget, but enough creative leeway to to really do it your way. Like that, there can be just these transcendent results. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the overall arc of the story from this season, because one of the things that I think, obviously, it was like a inter, like an intergalactic espionage story, and it was told from told in the way it was told. So we were pretty in the bag for it. But one of the things I think that you and I reacted to initially was the structure of the season with these three episode arcs. And this feeling like Cassian was always going forward. So that if Cassian was our sort of POV character, we were moving through the galaxy and we couldn't double back and we couldn't make sentimental attachments because this guy needed to always be moving. He, has, he was a shark. He needed to go from Aldani and he went to prison and then whatever mm -hmm. was next. And as it became apparent that they were going back to Ferrix and that all the loose ends were going to be tied up and then especially in the finale that... Essentially, every major character, with the exception of Ma Mothma, was going to come to Ferrix to mm -hmm. do what exactly? Like, I think you could make the argument that if you would ding the show at all, and I wouldn't, but if you wanted to, you could be like, this was an interesting battle royale of characters to all show up at this woman's funeral at the same time. And for me, it really hit hard. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I think that the sentimental attachment that I had built up and I think also it was an incredible event for all these different people to witness in different ways you know and it's obviously going to I imagine make Dedra even more sure of herself for instance I think it's going to you know be interesting to see what happens to the people who leave Ferrix that Cassian puts mm -hmm. on the spaceship but what did you think of the circular rather than like arrow like making it a circle rather than an arrow it that never doubles back I just thought it was very elegant. And I think I think in my head a lot now when watching the show, I think about the way Tony talks about story, which frankly is also the way like pipe fitters talk about pipes, which isn't to say that he is not an artist who can be deeply moved by things. But, you know, he doesn't have... 
he has such clarity of thought and structure where a lot of people who write things, any things, and I include myself in this, get kind of lost in the sauce about what we're doing and what's different and what it means and where the emotion is. And he seems able through, through obvious talent, but also I believe through the repetition of a craft, just see it almost in a, he sees the simplicity in it. You know, so you remember when I, when I asked him like, oh, you know, it was interesting to see it all circle back because we thought that he was a arrow shot out or, you know, a cannonball shot out of a cannon into the larger galaxy and into a larger story. And he was basically, and I believe I'm paraphrasing here, he was like, no, duh. You know, right. like it was the dumbest possible suggestion that it wouldn't because that's what stories do. So to make it all come all the way back home, to make it be about his mother, about his personal relationship, the person who found him and then he'd be lost without her and then she would push him forward again. It's just elegant and it makes sense. It also allowed the show to do something that is still so powerful, profound, and unique in IP storytelling, which is, oh, Ferrix is a place. Ferrix is a place with a very specific culture. Yeah. And they, they, the anvil is hit at certain times and there's music and there's instruments and there's colors and there's ceremony and there's culture and there's history and there's resentment, you know? And it's all in, I mean, again, you have Fiona Shaw posthumously, her character delivering a Shakespearean monologue like, like, like you know, Henry V's uh, St. Swithin's Day speech. Yeah. That's wild in and of itself, but it's rooted not in the abstract idea of, well, our hero better become a hero soon because we're at episode 12. It's rooted in the idea of what authority and empire and fascism does to a place, which is not a radical idea in terms of history books, but is a pretty radical idea in terms of IP storytelling. So... Yeah, like was I, and this is also, the, I, I will use the same language we often use when we talk about like crime novels and mysteries we like. Like, was there, if you had paused it at minute 22 and said, okay, pop quiz, who's converging here and what are their individual reasons for doing it? I would have been like, please get out of the way and let me press play again. Yeah, right. I no, don't I, care. I, and, I, and there's no Monday morning quarterbacking going on. I think that you're, you also hit on something there that is one of the great achievements of this show, which is the subtle things it says about living under you know, fascistic or autocratic rule, which is six episodes when we watched the uh, end of the Aldani arc. And it was like these 17 people left over who were coming to do this very mm-hmm. precious, unique ritual and, and celebration of their own culture. And it's kind of like, eh, like, just let these idiots do this. And then also like next year will be none at all or whatever. Like they'll just, that's, that's the end point of what they're trying to start doing with Ferrix. So all of the eye rolling that they do about, they make her into a brick and they do this and it's the daughters of Ferrix and all this stuff and, and grinding them down with like, well, we're going to, they're going to ask for this and we're going to give them that. And they'll be happy with that because we, yep. b- we budged a little bit, like all this bureaucratic nickel and diming that they do and the way in which they're trying to flatten the individual, uh, sort of traditions of every single place that they go, the, the empire I'm talking about is kind of like a bigger deal to me than whether or not Cyril shows back up on the planet. Yeah, conveniently, he, right at the same time as Dedra and that whole thing. Like, th- what the the total achievement of the season outpaces anything where you're like, oh yeah, of course, like he's the one standing next to her to save her. This whole show is about these weird little moments 
that transform these people. Marvel wasn't starting out the season being like, what I have to do is become a ghost revolutionary. You know, like, it's not like that. It also, though, every moment of Cyril on screen leads to this. Mm -hmm. There was thought there. I mean, he is obsessive. He was not going to let this go. He needed to be there if there was a chance that Andor would be there also. Like, and when she saw Dedra, his eyes are only on her. I mean, that tracks. We've seen that. So it's not far-fetched when it's resolved. It's maybe unclear in the offing or in the, you know, in the buildup. But but I don't think anyone watching this is bumping on where it landed, which is, which is key to storytelling like this. I would also just say again, and I know we're kind of broken records on this, but I can't get over it. There has always been magic in the Star Wars universe. It's not called magic. It's called the Force. But like that is one of, if not the biggest brick in the wall that has allowed this franchise to thrive and grow and be beloved for 40 years. In our experience with it, there is always the open-ended question in any circumstance, in any movie or in the last few years of shows, that someone could show up and lift something with their mind. Whether it's Grogu on The Mandalorian or whether it's Luke himself showing up or Rey or Kylo or whatever else the gang was up to in those in those sequel movies. This is a show that made such an important counterbalance to that. There is no magic in the traditional Star Wars sense of magic, but there is life and there is color and there is music and there's poetry and there's Nemec's manifesto and there's writing and there's different ways to be inspired as living creatures, not necessarily all humans in this galaxy, which does this remarkable job of making people like us care about it more. But I think it also makes the magic when the magic comes back inevitably mean something more because it's a richer place. It's not just one thing until this, until the the farm boy with the laser sword shows up. It's just not. And, you know, I, my head's still spinning from it because I'm not saying, I don't, not all franchises are the same. Like there isn't necessarily, although I kind of wish there was, the Marvel show that's just about, I can't even say Jessica Jones because there was that show and she had superpowers, even though it was about her relationship to it. Like there was briefly a Marvel series about the newspaper, the Daily Bugle, right? And like, okay. and and so is that show in development? Probably, but that's not the same, right? Because it's Earth. It's Earth with Sokovia. Well, no longer. Briefly, it had Sokovia. <laughs> but this is the fully fleshing out or like taking a coloring book and finally coloring in all the other pages. And it's just, it's just an, it's, it, it's such an achievement. And I don't know, you know, tying into the things we said on Monday, I hope Bob Iger sees it for what it is. I know that there's going to be internal debate and postmortems and whatever about the ratings and about the expense of the show versus other things and the return on investment. But I just love it for what it is. And it doesn't matter beyond that. But I just continue to believe that like, this is an important seed because of the things that are exemplified by this episode. And by the way, guess what? We get 12 more. We get 12 more. And there's no, it, there's, it's a no doubter, right? Like this was a story that's halfway done. And I loved it. I loved it for that too. There wasn't like a, well, it could end here. No, we're not done. There's that element too of there's human behavior versus character behavior. And I think the writer needs to know that there are, so the writer needs to know that the character might not know why they are doing something or might be open to there being multiple reasons for doing something. The reason why I'm bringing this up is not only like, why is Cyril on the planet? You know, like, isn't he risking something and probably great expense by stealing from his mother to go there? But even Luthen being there. And when mm-hmm. Luthen is there and he's sort of like entertaining, Vel is like, we got to kill this guy. 
you know, like, or, you know, what are you going to do about this guy? And he's just like, we just take out the hotel as soon as he goes into the hotel. But I don't think that that's entirely true. I think he's also watching. He's watching mm-hmm. as a spectator to see like, how good is this dude? You know, is this dude on the level of, I can defy the greatest odds here where I'm taking on an entire garrison single-handedly to, you know, emotionally get closure with my mother, but also to escape the clutches of the empire. But also, it's always a bigger story. So what Luthen is, what's playing on Skarsgård's face is that it's not theoretical anymore. It's not the stuff of yeah. manifestos and moving money around and backroom blather. It's not. It's people are throwing their bodies at laser guns. Like, that's what they're doing now. And he yeah. sees a kid, it. And a kid threw an eye, like a bomb, you know? Like, that's, yeah. that's the start. This is real now. And that plays on his face too. And 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 I think it's a, a testament to the the actor and also the way the show is, is edited that we get some of that. There's some ambiguity in it, right? It's a little bit scary in that moment. Um, and we should shout out, I think it's Benjamin Karen who directed the episode, right? Yeah, he not did a directed great job. on the show previously. Oh no, and, I think he had done he did one a, a little bit earlier. Did he? Right? Okay, good. I yeah. wasn't sure. But regardless, I can't imagine a harder episode to track this many POV characters into a physical space and keep us oriented and navigate us through it. I mean, it's, it was, it's a testament to the direction, the editing, all of it. It's just such a well-made show. The procession is such a great dramatic uh, metronome for the episode too. Like that second half of the episode essentially being this funeral happening and this slow build and to have all that music and to sort of give everybody a reason to follow along with it, I thought was just brilliant, but he staged it very, very well. My only other question that I wanted to ask, and it's pretty small stakes, I think, compared to everything, but I think we'll probably have some bearing going into the next season is what do you make of like Cyril and Dedra's exchange? You know, obviously he saves her from physical danger and she's just like, I guess I should say thank you. I don't necessarily think that it's a romantic relationship, but I wonder whether or not it's like two souls recognizing their their counterpart kind of thing where it's like you and I both believe mm-hmm. that we will go to whatever extent we need to to like protect the rule here. Like yes, but it also does play on an emotional level, which is why which is why I think a lot of people are shipping it, or at least even jokingly shipping it, you know, with right. some Twitter montages set to Taylor Swift songs. It's they're the two hungriest people on the show. They're absolutely ravenous. And they, in that moment, they see that in each other. You know, I think that Cyril saw that already, but she now sees it in him. And she's also, like Luthen, disheveled from it being real. It's not playtime anymore. She's not just, you know, in her all-white office with her beautifully tailored outfit with the two pens that never get used. Like, it's real now. She almost died. And so she's not just a speculative chess player. She's a warrior also. And they see that in each other. And that's it's great. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just wonderful uh, character work to take them on the journey they went on this season, leaving you in a place where you can't wait to see where there's where there is still yet to go. And the fact that they will now be united in that makes a lot of sense. And there's still a lot of stuff that hasn't been united. I mean, the Mon Mothma storyline, we moved from the drawing room to the car today, which was exciting. Um, yeah. And then back to the and drawing I, room. I assume that she was essentially using her husband as a human shield for yes. knowing that she's being listened to. So she's going to like throw out like, Oh, it's his gambling debts. That's the problem. And again, like the, the benefit of getting the chance to talk to Tony a few times, then it in, informs our viewing. And so we keep referencing it, but it was an amazing reference when he was like getting on set with Genevieve O'Reilly was realizing that we had a Stradivarius in the orchestra. 
she plays all of it. Yeah. She plays all of it, even just in the wordless moment when she, you know, undoes her gown and reveals her neck. And then, you know, she's vulnerable and she knows what she's doing to her husband. And we know the history between them. But at some point, you know, when they were 15 or maybe when they were 20 or whenever in their relationship, she did love him a little bit. And she knows what she's doing. I really feel like there was a missed opportunity for Ringer crossover there because it would be amazing Mm. if he was like, the reason why I'm broke is because I keep listening to Bill on Million Dollar Picks. And, then and losing. Sh- and show it, week and then he showed week. her the FanDuel account where he's just like, look. Can you imagine the ad read? That <laughs> he told me to you guys the Giants. Would, the ad read you guys would have to do if you had to do the gambling support line oh, yeah. for Trand- Chandralar and Endor yeah. and, you know, Narkina 5 or whatever. I mean, but it would be But the Croatia endless. planet that Cassian goes to, it's, there's, no, there's no restrictions, baby. There's no. There- <laughs> <laughs> it is free and clear there. Free um, and clear. What's so, a, Chris? Yeah, we're we're uh, you know only a week or two away from doing our year end pod. Mm-hmm. Um, this is going to be a high on your list, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I'm, I'm having a by myself conversation about it at one. I am too, because for all the reasons, and we'll talk about this in depth when we reveal our list and we do the podcast, and we'll give it more thought. But like. To be number one, you do. It is still, in a way, we're still blog boys. Like there has to be an argument that is bigger than the show itself. Because especially this year, there are at least I think by my you know back of the notepad, there's like at least five shows that I could plausibly put at number one and feel Absolutely. okay about it. Yeah, this just made me feel stuff and feel excited in a way that other shows have not done, which isn't a, a because and, and and a lot of that has to do with the 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 degree of difficulty and in in the world that it existed and reignited and just enlivened and opened up um it's what an achievement and it's just pretty thrilling that there's more you know I, it's i can't get over that fact there are episodes of television uh, i'm thinking specifically of some episodes of Barry that i saw where i was like this mm-hmm. feeling that i am having seeing this happen yes this is the best show of the year even though maybe i don't know if this season is and then there are shows that perhaps came to a, a conclusion or were in their, like in the case of We Own the City or The Bear, their first or last season, albeit, uh, but like, lim- you know, the, the We Own the City being a limited series, The Bear being in its first season, where I was like, this is such a breath of fresh air and such an exciting new way of thinking that I'm, I'm tempted to make this my show of the year. And then there's something like Andor, where it was like a sustained nearly you know like a three-month experience almost of greatness you know and the this is why i think i like doing this podcast so much is when we have a show like this when we have yeah. a succession when we have a mayor of east town when we have a show that feels like it doesn't really i mean like i'd love to believe in the monoculture still i don't but like it can be just you and me are like hey for 12 weeks let's talk about this and your week starts to be the time before I watch the new episode of Andor and the time after. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the best feeling. You know, I mean, there's a lot of of things TV does wrong now and there's a lot of ways in which it's delivered that are kind of annoying. But this is kind of like what I love. I agree. And I also just can't stress this enough. Just to, I, I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry I keep doing small sample size theater. But like we, Chris and I, we, we, we do live out here in this quote unquote, this town. And we talk to people who write for TV and write for movies. And there is a refrain among people who are watching the show, which is he's better at this. He's the best at this. You know, it's just unprecedented and we're all learning from it. And that's not just us saying that that's other people who make shows that you guys love. And it's humbling and dazzling and crazy. It's crazy masterclass that to just roll into a different medium and show off. I, 
clearly this whole podcast today is just an advertisement for the Bill Simmons podcast, which I think is a struggling little show that the ringer's thrown together and it needs to, to boost its numbers. But like listening to it, we're recording this on Monday. You know, he's, he, Bill and Sal started just by being like, okay, well, Mahomes is the best. He's, he's the best. Like there was some debate. Maybe it was someone else for a while. We thought it was going to be Josh Allen this year, but it's really not even close. And that's the way I feel about the writing behind the show. It's yeah. just, yep. I, there are moments that hit differently or surprise you more or are trying to do something different, funny or whatever. But it's like, dude, just study this. Honestly, I am. It's unreal. It's unreal. Well, Let's get into our third chat with Tony Gilroy. As Your we were third recording chat. with this I'm on so Monday, I still, I still think that there's a chance that you might call in. Really? Yeah. Will you guys call me? If I don't, if I'm not, if we come back from break, we say, throw to the interview and I'm not there. Will you uh, ask Tony one thing for me? Leave your outgoing voicemail message. Will you ask him if he'll direct my pilot? Because <laughs> I know he said no four years ago, but I feel like we've softened him up. <laughs> There's got to be something in it for us, right? always always the the i finally revealed it mask mask off thanks to kai mcmullen for producing that's thanks to andy greenwald for uh for being my buddy and for doing this pod and we will be back after thanksgiving everybody have a safe one have a healthy one have a happy one say hi to your mom for us and uh we'll talk to you soon enjoy the mashed potatoes baranskis this episode is brought to you by mint mobile one thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season your wireless bill just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now, they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. For first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Walmart Plus. With a Walmart Plus membership, you save on everything you need to stay entertained. A Paramount Plus subscription is included to watch all your favorite shows. Plus, there's free delivery and even gas discounts. So when you're done streaming, you can hit the town and find entertainment in the real world, too. Save on all this, plus much more with Walmart Plus. Start a free 30-day trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus essential plan only. Separate registration required. $35 order minimum. See walmart.com slash plus for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold slurpy drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven and your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small slurpy drink with seven rewards. It's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that I'm going to be going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now. How about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax. Participating U.S. stores see app for full terms. All rights reserved. Tony, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, this is the the conclusion of our trilogy. 
Um, I wanted to start by asking about like sort of the superstructure of the season because I was really struck by the fact that you had sort of paced out the first part of this, maybe two thirds of the season with these sort of going further and further out. Cassian's going to Aldani. Cassian gets imprisoned. And it almost has like this moment where you're like, is each block of these episodes going to be him going sort of further and further out and getting changed by each experience he's having? And I guess the danger there would be like it becomes gun smoke and every every couple of episodes he has like a different kind of experience. But then you bring him home and you bring him back to Ferrix. And I was very struck by uh, how emotionally resonant that was for for me as a viewer. But I wonder for you as a writer, did you need him to kind of go back to where he came from to give this season an almost emotional color that it wouldn't have had if he had just kept on the run. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really good grammar, you know, it's sort of probably in the beginning, it's a little bit aspirational and you're kind of going, can I do this? You don't want to be, you know, you don't want to, you're kind of balancing while you're in that, in all those early stages, you know, we talked before, I mean, everything for me is like sketching, you know? So I just, I end up just sketching and sketching and sketching all over the place. So, God, you'd love to get back there. Uh, you don't want to, you don't want to warp the story to do it. But as it certainly looks like it becomes a possibility, not only does it become a possibility, but then you know there's pressure from production. If we're going to build a set that's this big and this expensive, we have to use it as much as possible. So please tell us we can have as many episodes there as possible. So that's and you're just kind of going like, well, and you know, Cassian's a hard guy. He's a He's and 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 Diego's very you know a lot of discussions beforehand about how you know be brave and hold it and don't be perfect. So if there's anything cool about him along the way, if, if I'm keeping him cool and keeping him slightly obscure or slightly less engaging, Ferrex is warm and Ferrex is going through the exact same thing that he's going through. And when he ends up back there, you get to see, you know. Ferrex pulled together, literally, physically, emotionally, in every other way, and it kind of warms him up, and and uh, it's dramatically, it's dramatically correct, it's grammatically correct, and it's, it's happy for production. So it's just, you know, you, I think when you're writing, you're always looking for that gravitational, you're looking for the black hole that's going to pull you into something natural, and so it's just, it's, um, it's just that convergence of things. Then you have to then you have to get everybody there. And then it becomes another. It's harder to get everybody else there. That's the problem. So how do you get everybody else there? You start thinking about, you know, all these reasons why Dedra needs to be there, why Luther needs to be there, why Vel needs to be there. Yeah, the hard and I had like what's really like because it's I know you guys go really deep and it's kind of inside baseball, but like what's fancy? Uh getting Cyril there is kind of fancy. You know, I have uh, Alex Ferns that everybody, everyone wants to see Sergeant Mosk come back. Yeah. I do. And so I got, well, you know, if he makes a call and he calls the apartment and find this connection isn't good and sketch that and Edie's there. And then, and that seems really, it, it was really goofball on the page and very helpful. And it certainly obscured the fact that I'm, you know, I'm disguising something mechanical there. And then when Ben shot it and with the plan for it, because we also didn't have any money for that, we like, oh man, we don't just just do it on a screen and make the smelter off off camera. And we kind of had the idea, but it, oh my God, when they showed me what they had done, it's just so funny and it's so satisfying. And you want to see it. You nobody nobody would ever think twice to be like, wow, this is the writer trying to get this guy to go someplace, right? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that. 
it, no, it, I mean, it, I may, probably shouldn't even say that because it, like, it shows, you know, it shows Santa at uh, Walmart. No, no, no. This, but I like being inside the workshop, though. That's the whole point of this podcast is to All kind right, of well, understand. I mean, that is fancy, advanced, you know, screenwriting. And, um, you know, people, oh, the Bourne movies. Oh, how do you, you know, what's the hardest thing? The hardest thing in the Bourne movies. Absolutely. Bar none. The hardest thing is to get people to have scenes together. Yeah. Right. You're running and hiding and I don't want to be with you. And I'm doing, how do I, how do you get a scene between people and get going the fun, you know? So, and, and how does somebody even know that somebody's in a place to even have a scene together? How information flows is, uh, is the root canal of writing born. <laughs> and, uh, and so this was a little bit of a uh, little bit of uh, <laughs> probably pulling a little bit out of the old, the old toolkit there, but that, that's a, that's a, that's a really good one. I mean, I don't think anybody until I said it, you would never have thought that, right? Right. No, I wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, and also it's like, I think that that's something that TV struggles with sometimes. I mean, I'm watching like, I'm, for instance, I watch Yellowstone and it's like, there's a character on Yellowstone who hasn't talked to his brother in a room in like three seasons and you don't really know why. And it, maybe it's scheduling or maybe it's whatever, but you realize how hard it would be because this guy is not on an everyday basis in the same office as the other guy. And it's just really, it's really hard to draw characters together. You have to have a galvanizing event. That's what you get with Marvis. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, just, and in how information flows and who knows what, you know, and, and, and you can't have um, the worst tell in anything is that you, is, is where, you know, the IQ of the characters or the, or their knowledge base or their attitude about something changes from scene to scene to help the writer out. Then, then, then you kind of, if you read a script like that, you go, wow, this is, this is nowhere. That's a tell for me, but yeah, but that's a fancy, uh, you know, that's a fancy little bit of business. And, um, yeah, I, I'm doing a lot of, uh, I'm doing a lot of old tricks in there to get everybody there, but yeah. Well, there's, I, the, the other thing that I really loved was the way in which the funeral becomes this stage and you get to see the characters in different ways. So Cassian goes back, and there's a degree of sentimentality to his return. I mean, there's also just a personal responsibility that he feels, but that's contrasted with Luthen, who has just spent the last couple of episodes being like, I would sacrifice 50 people for one man. You know, like the whole calculus of this rebellion is going to need to be sacrifice and a lack of sentimentality. And he gives that whole amazing speech about like, I'll never see the sunset on this world. So when you have Cassian and Luthen, are they supposed to be maybe two poles of an approach to? A revolution? I don't, I mean, if they are, then it's like, uh, you know, then it's, uh, it's a term paper. It's not what I'm thinking about. Right. I just, I just, they're just bringing there with everything they have. I mean, I want to have Cassian completely out of gas and have been through everything and realize that if he doesn't resolve this one way or other, he, he's going to have to keep running. I, I think he's legitimately telling the truth in the end of that scene. Like literally put me out of my misery or put me to use. I, I don't want to, my mother's dead and my place is gone. Everything I saved the people I could save. I'm done. I'm tired. But no, I don't think about it the way you said it before, because uh, I'm happy if that shows up. I'm yeah. I'm, I'm always, like you said before, you know, I'm happy that like I'm real, and this was not in my mind doing it, but you're happy. I'm really happy. Someone said, why is he hiding up there? And he's watching and I'm going, you know what? He's watching this place come together in the same way that he's been coming together. You know, these arterial forces joining down into the cortex of Rick's road. And it's like, wow. I mean, it's not what I, 
my goal is like, is can we build a place that you can actually hide and see Luthen and what we see from the, you know, you're doing all the mechanical things, but in the end you look back and go, wow, this is, this is when, this is when it's working well. Yeah. And I also thought that his past experiences, even within the season of Andor wound up being kind of echoed in that funeral procession, because I couldn't help but think about the Aldanis and think about their customs and their traditions that they show in the I episode And yet that was like a kind of, you know, that's time has passed those people by and the empire has ground those people down. And this is sort of the people of Farrick saying it's not going to be us one way or the other. Like we're either going to fight for it or we're going to die doing it. But that's not going to be us having like 15 people who are given a permit to celebrate the daughters of Farrick's. And I I love that echo back to earlier in the season. Yeah, I mean, we've seen the erosion of all. I mean, he's seen what? I mean, even go back earlier. Canari was destroyed. So he's just—it's just a series of exiles to him until finally he's exiled into heroism, I guess, or whatever. Yeah, that's the yeah. Another bit of heroism is obviously Marva's speech, which I wonder whether or not you know you had said a couple of times over the course of our conversations throughout the season that you had an idea of where it was going to end, and I was struck by just how powerful that moment was and the image. So I have to imagine that was what you were talking about, that you had this vision of, of this projection of Marva giving uh, a, you know, yes. a, a St. Crispin's Day speech, kind of. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the writing of that? I was curious, actually, on a technical level, did like, how did you, was that shot with an actual projection on set? Or were people, did you have people hearing that speech in real time as, as they were on the set there? Yes. Yeah, we... Um... I don't want to get a lot into rogue stuff. We had a lot of experience from doing the Mads hologram, the Mads right. hologram. So, and that's, so there's, the, there's a lot to learn about doing that. It's also very exciting, but, and the same people, Moen, Moen and uh, TJ, Moen, Leo and TJ Falls and all this stuff. There's a way of doing, so yeah, you, you got to do a guide track and then you do the other thing and then you build pieces. And, and we had Fiona, Fiona gave us, I think she gave us a, vo- a, a voice track first and we played the voice track for all the people. And then, you know, they obviously they put up balls and stuff for people to look at and react to. So it's real, but yeah, we were broadcasting for speech live in there. Yeah. I did know I was going to have that. I mean, were you surprised when she popped up out of the thing? I think I was surprised by the scale of it, you know, cause in my experience, like the Leia message in a new hope is like this little, this little like kind of email that they get on the side. And right. right. This- no, I see the scale of it, but I mean, I think there were people who thought, you know, you're trying to give the audience confidence. I mean, that's one thing that every writer's trying to do on the first scene of their show, everything. You really want the audience to relax and go, oh, okay, these people know what they're doing. I don't have to worry about the story. They're going to take care of me. So it, we kind of feel like, oh, we, we got to 11 and then we didn't show her, her death. And I think some people were thinking, oh, there was a scheduling conflict or these guys really dropped the ball. Or I even saw a theory that Marva wasn't dead and so we trying to sneak her out. I'm like, wow, that's interesting. Yeah. But the, the but I would only do that. Yeah, I would only skip that scene if I knew I had a, you know, I knew I knew I had a, you know, an Ace King in my uh, in my hall card. You know, I, I have I have I have the hologram, so I can be a little confident there. And um, you know, these big speeches are uh, they're easier to write than you. There's so many things that are harder than that. I don't think I'm unique in that. I think that I think a lot of I think writers feel that way in some ways. It's some, I mean, writing, figuring out how to get Cyril in Ferrex is a lot harder than, for, a lot more time consuming than writing more of a speech, which is sort of a, 
uh, a really big packed musket that is ready to go off. And what's the hook? What's what's the because you guys like to go so small. I tell you what's the hook in that in there for me when I the line when she says the first time she came is she's like what she said she came she was a little girl she held her sister's hand and she came through the she really she's been seeing these her whole life long you go, oh my god so if you been to all these funerals what does it mean to you and so that that was the hook in once i had that then i'm good why do you think that the speeches are easier is it just because there's no you don't have to worry about the rhythm of people interacting in a room you can just kind of let luthan or let marva cook or is it just that is it that you these are almost like um thesis statements for you and you you have it already you know i don't know you know (laughs) there's probably some people that i know that would say you're just such a bloviating asshole. <laughs> yeah. We've seen you. We've seen you two bottles of wine and two vodkas in at dinner, and we know where you go. So there's probably people who would say that. Um, but like, I don't know. When's the first time the the president's speech in Armageddon was like? I remember doing that in a hotel. I was like, we had to have it for some shit. I can't remember. Was that still when I was on Armageddon? And it's like. It was literally like, oh, speech for the president, the asteroid's about to hit the, you know, and you, and you like, you dash it off and you come back an hour later and it's like almost there. So it's like, I don't know. I, I guess it probably is some big part of vanity and, and wanting to hit the, I don't know. It's, it's probably a personal failing that is profitable. The thing I loved about the Marvis speech and honestly, the same thing I loved about the Nemec manifesto kind of still coming back into play is even if this never comes up in season two and never gets thought about again in all of Star Wars, I love thinking about the idea that these are these kind of iconic totemic, the literature of the rebellion. Like it's like everybody who was there will tell everybody that they know about what was said that day or what they read in in Nemec's manifesto. And that that almost provides the intellectual backbone for what's about to happen. Yeah, no, the 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 Nemec one is is super valuable. That was a real that's a real gap. That was really uh I mean that that to me is an important speech. And I don't, you know, I think it is I think I really I think oppression is really hard. I think it really is hard to hold things together to to that. I mean that's I think I really believe that thesis and so that's that's easy to write cuz I believe that over the course of these conversations, we've talked about a lot of the collaborators that you had on this show, but we haven't really talked about uh, Nicholas Bertel, who in some ways gets like his hero moment with this funeral procession. And I, I, I saw you, another interview you did for, for this final episode talking about it's like a second line, New Orleans thing meets a, an IRA funeral. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about like the direction you gave Nicholas about that moment? Because the music is as much a character in this in this whole sequence as, as Marva or Cassian or anybody else. It was really our introduction. We, 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 uh, we'd spoken and met and obviously his reputation was so huge and he's such a, you know, Oh my God. And, and all our, our phone conversations were great, but, um, long, but right in the very beginning, way before production, I had, went down to his apartment and was like, okay, I need, I need three pieces of digetic, uh, music to go before we start shooting. So we needed the, you know, the tap, tap, tapping idea, the, the, the signaling idea for Ferrix for the warning and the, and the stuff for the time grappler, you know, and, and mm-hmm. thing for that. And, and that's music really in a way. I didn't want to have that be sound. And then, uh, the Aldani's had their thing. We need, I said, we really need these chanting and there may be more there, but I said, what I really need 
and there's no, I need eight minutes of music at the end to cover this funeral. And it, I want it live and I want it played by people who are a community, you know, a community orchestra. I think there's always something so heartbreaking about high school bands. And, <laughs> and we called them, you know, I said, I want it aspirational, like aspirational horns, you know, and, uh, and I played him a couple things from um, from the band from when John the John Simon the the the, the horns that I loved how the horns sounded on those first two band albums. Oh know? yeah, I was I was just it's funny you should say that I was just listening to Rock of Ages the other day and it's, they've oh got all the well, New Orleans horns. But in the but in the albums, you know, and in, in, in the band in Big Pink, and I just those albums are just epic for me. But. John Simon, those guys are all playing horns, but they're not playing their actual instruments. They're all great musicians, but they're, but they're playing. Horns. And so we call them aspirational horns. It's people standing on their tiptoes to do it. It's just so heartbreaking. And so that's how we met. And we worked for a couple of weeks on that. And we were so happy with what we did because we also had no vocabulary for what's Star Wars digetic music and what's not too terrestrial, but is soulful and hits with humans. and. And it was, man, we just had the best time and came out with that. And then uh, got to put that together with Matt Dunkley and, and Nick's team in, in, in London. And actually Matt Dunkley, who's the, who's the concert master of that and the musical director of all that, actually plays Dr. Mal, like he's the doctor who comes. Yeah. Have him come and be the doctor. Because I want like the plumber and the doctor and you want to see other people that you recognize, you know, doing that. And so we did that first and it was a... Uh, you know, it was a and we it was a big win, and then you know, six months later, I'm back. Okay, now I need seven hours of music. You know, <laughs> it, really, it started off very strong. It was really a lot of fun. It um, it was an odd way to begin, but it was a good key to turn. Yeah, it's funny. It's like he's like a five tool player in this season because he has to do Croatian nightclub music. He has to do <laughs> Irish funeral music. He's got to do Star Wars, like Imperial classical. It's it's really amazing. I know, but Nick is the Swiss Army knife for that. He's you know he's just he. There isn't anything. There's we just talk music for years because, and he can go anywhere. He can go. He can he can go from anything to anything. It's great. It's fun. I haven't really asked you, you know, you mentioned Born, and I, I, I know you know that Andy and I are obsessed with Born Legacy. You know, what was it like the experience of, of especially now watching this, the series that it's come out on Disney and everything? I know you wanted to direct this. I know the plan was that you were going to be directing a lot of it. And I was curious whether the experience of making this first season at Andor had changed your relationship to directing at all, because obviously, like, this is being universally praised and people are obsessed with it. And maybe this is a medium where you can exact more control over what's being seen on screen than if you were just writing a script in Hollywood and a director takes it and starts messing around with it. But did this experience change your relationship to directing at all? And, and if so, how? Yeah, quite a bit. I mean, I don't feel the, the amount of, uh, the amount of creative control, the amount of decisions, the amount of uh, engagement, the, the denial of death, that, that great activity brings all the rest of those things that directing and also having, you know, uh, you know, several hundred people who will listen to you and do what you say, you know, all the control aspects, of, all those things are satisfied in this showrunner job in a way that, I mean, really almost goes beyond directing. But then the, the, the two difficult parts of it are 
you know, the hiring directors is really, really tough. There's so many people out there after the same people. And our requirements are really, you know, this is, you got to really fly a 747. You can't, we can't, we can't, we can't take chances really. Yeah. In a lot of shows can do. So you got to have a certain amount of flight time. Everybody's fighting for those people. And then if you're trying to hire directors, you have to watch everybody's tapes. You end up watching thousands of episodes of stuff that, that of people that turn you down or you watch them and you, you know, you don't like, so it's, it's tough that, um, and then when they come in, what's so cool about it, it's happening literally today. It was happening on Monday. You know, Ari started shooting on Monday and just fully prepped. He's been prepping since June. He's got, you know, 55 days to shoot. He's got a great team. We've been in communication all the way through. Someone asked me a couple of weeks ago, well, who's your writer on set? I go, we do not have a writer on set. How can you not have a writer? I said, by the time we get there, everything is done. Right. All my work is done. And then I'm tired. <laughs> I have so much. I have to get ready for 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 Giannis's block, and and I have to get the scripts finalized and upgraded for for uh, Alfonso coming and all the rest of stuff. And I'm t- I have I have so many other things to be occupied with the tire. And I watch his first day. Sh- I watch him get his first shot off. I went out to the thing, and it's like, yeah, man, that like I might I might be lazier here and just do this. And look what he they they come and they they really bring you know they they bring themselves and they bring this, this extra greed and this ambition and they're competitive with one another and they want to do well. And so it's, they bring really, it's good for the show and it's essential for me. So it's, um, I, I will, I, 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 whatever I do next, I'm sure I'll direct uh, something. I would, I would like to do it, but I wouldn't want to do something this big. I was, I, I have to admit, I, I let out a real, fist bump when I saw Alonzo Ruiz Palacios was going to be one of the second season directors because I, I loved his narco stuff, but he made that movie. Museo. Uh, well, and, and cop movie. I, I really oh, yeah. liked you ever too. Seen Museo, that was great. Museo yeah. was fantastic. No, no, he's really, no, he's, uh, I was just on the phone with him this morning, actually. So yeah, so it, they, and you know, they're all different. They all have their own tempo. It's kind of interesting that way, but man, it's really hard. It's really tough out there. It's, it's a, it's a, it's kind of like baseball in a way, expansion teams, you know, there's, there, there just isn't enough, there isn't enough marquee talent to spread around. Right. Right. You know, and movies right. used to be shows used to be, you know, you'd have, you know, you'd have a, you'd have a, a marquee center and you'd have a great power forward and you'd have a, and you'd have an all-star guard. Those people would take you all the way. And, you know, you'd have that in a movie. Now, any one of those people are so, uh, in demand that they all have their own shows. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> gathering intense, you know, gathering, gathering franchise players together is really tough. I would imagine now, have you started with, as, as production on the second season has started, are people that you're collaborating with now living in a post andor world? Where they're like, oh well, now I understand because I've seen it, and now yes. I I have like a different take on things because I've I know the rhythms, I know how this is going to sound when Stellan says it, I know how it's going to look when this happens. Does it has it changed the way the show is being made at all? It just well, I had to give a speech right before we uh the, you know go again. Here's why you don't want to be a director. I had to get up at five o'clock in the morning, you go in the dark out to Long Cross to the set, and you get out of the car, you're like, oh my god, it's you, it's sort of you know, all your, all your director deja vu to go give a speech. And so I, what I said, I think is Jermaine. It's like, 
the second jump out of the plane is supposed to be, I've never jumped out of a plane, but supposedly the second time you jump is much, much more terrifying. The first time you just go, the second time you're like, oh my God, what could happen? So there is the fear, collective fear. We know what it's going to take to get this done. It's like, and everybody's knows how many things could go wrong. And so the, the weight of it is in front of you, but man, we did it. We took care of each other. We have an ethic on the show. Uh, we have a communication system. We have a, we have a really rational open. We, we, Zana Wallenberg, who really is my sister on this thing. I mean, I, she's just, our relationship is so uh, two sides of the, of the mask. And, and she does all the heavy lifting on all the production stuff. And I do all the other stuff. And yet we meet in the middle and we always agree. Um, but we have really, I, I'm very proud of uh, as much as anything of the stuff that you don't see, which is that we really have a, we really have a community of people that really feel like they're valued and they're all filmmakers. And it's the show that we always wanted to work on. And everybody there has worked on shit shows with, with assholes and things that were dysfunctional. And we want to do everything we can to make a safe haven so that people will just die for us. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully not literally. Literally, man, you got, there, there's part of this that we really have to be Shackleton, even if, you know, and part of it's performative, you know, you have to, in the same way directors, whether they tell you or not, part of being a director, a good director is putting on a show. It really is. So you have to right. almost get, sometimes you're really faking this other, you know, sometimes you've been faking the other personality so long it becomes who you are, but you, part of it's performative. You got to really do that. And, uh, I don't know. Yeah. All of that. <laughs> I wanted to sort of wrap by asking you a little bit about whether you've been intrigued by or frustrated by or gratified by because I in my conversations with friends watching this show and also reading online like people sort of drawing connections between what's happening in Andor and what's happened either historically in the real world or going on in the real world and you obviously are pretty candid about your feelings about oppression and everything else but how important was it to you to have something that was it was only referencing itself because I, I feel like a couple of times I've seen you mention like yes there are like a hundred examples of something like what happened in Ferrex happening in the real world, but for me, it has to make sense for Ferrex. So I was curious about like the desire to keep things within the Star Wars ecosystem versus sort of breaking out into the real world. Uh, well, I have to, I have to stay in the world I've made, so it, it always has to be there. I can't do anything that's not that's not germane or proper for what's going on, and I also have to. I mean, I have four more years of storytelling to to deal with, so I have a lot of issues that I don't want to put in the first part of the show that I want to save for later on and different things like that. But, um, I think that, and I'm not really, it's not a sneaky answer. I've kind of answered this because I, this question comes up in, in almost every thoughtful conversation that we have with, with people about the show and, and the press on this has just been fascinating. It's been the most intriguing press I've ever done for anything. And I think my, I think I've come around, I didn't have this idea of what to do in the show, but I think it's really sad in a way Everybody can look at the things that they want to find in the show and that are, that are you know, uh, modern atrocities or modern injustices or, mo you know, or this is a comp to this or that. And what's sad is that it's just the fact that people think that what they're going through now 
is something new. These are not contemporary <laughs> issues. The sad story is that, you know, the last, what, 4,000 years of recorded history is just a, is just a replicating machine of all these issues over and over and over and over again. And it's sad that we, it's sad that it's so easy to go, oh, well, this is us because we're so vain. We think we're the, you know, we're the only people who've lived through, you know, uh, this kind of incarceration or drive-by, you know, traffic stops or slavery or, or environmental destruction or, 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 or just complete savage authority. I mean, it's just on repeat. And um, so I'm, I'm saved from having to land on anything contemporary by a legitimate catalog of, of history that, he, you know, allows me to not answer that question. And it allows me to answer that question in that way and be legit. Well, I'm curious what it's like then to write scenes set among the oppressors, you know, and, and specifically Dedra, who I think has been one of the more fascinating characters I've come across in Star Wars full stop, because I think partially because of the performance and like the, you know, the way in which Denise Gao's eyes look, you know, where they're just like, yeah, it seems yeah. like she she blinks like three times a day or something. Uh, but also her true believer nature, you know, and her kind of like, it's obviously what she sees or what Cyril sees in her and what she may eventually see in Cyril is this idea of like a true devotion to a rule of law that even if it is, you know, appalling to everybody watching and everybody else living under it is that's their new Testament. And those are the, the commandments. What's it like to write scenes in the ISB among people who are doing the oppressing? You just put it on and you, I mean, I wrote a movie for Satan's point of view. <laughs> That's true. It was easy. That's true. Was like, oh my God. Look, but you don't know? touch is still a very, very powerful. Oh, I mean, all these shit that he says was like, it was so easy to write. I'm like, God, it's way too easy to write this Nietzsche and Satan dialogue. It's like, you just have to be, they all have to be when you're writing them, you gotta you gotta put the you gotta put them on and, and you gotta be with them and it, you gotta write from their point of view and that and you get re, you know, you get rewarded for doing that over the years. So I guess it's a muscle that you build up, but I there isn't anybody I ever wrote that I wasn't I wasn't on their side when I was writing their scenes. I mean, that's always the question people ask actors is, do you have to believe that this person is, do you have to identify with this person? Do you have to like this person? Do you have to believe that this person is the hero of this story? But, you know, it's like, it's like people doing presses that, you know, uh, I have a friend and, 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 and she's, she's in a, an interesting situation. I won't get into the whole thing, but she, there's a lot of aggressive press out there. And, and there's a lot of people that, sh- that, that you don't want to be talking to because it's like, why does anybody pick up the phone and talk to this journalist? Cause you know, you're going to get crushed. Why does anybody go and if you watch the first 48 on TV, why do people confess? <laughs> because everybody thinks that if they just speak long enough, and if you, if I can get you to listen hard enough, you will understand what I'm saying. Everybody feels that way. And everybody's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and well, that's, how, you know, that's why people confess to like, you know, oh God. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the, if I just, like, just, just give me another minute and I'll explain it to you. You know, I slaughtered 17 people in cold blood, but you know what? But, 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 yeah. Yeah, you'd understand if you just listen a little longer. Yeah. Uh, I could listen longer, but I want to uh, give you your day before Thanksgiving. Thanks so much for making this show. 
cannot wait to see season two. And Andy and I have just loved talking about it the whole year. I, I can't, uh, I just, and I hope this stays on the tape. I mean, this doing press like this over this long haul and with everybody, I mean, it's, it, it would be, it would be an agony if people weren't liking the show, but, um, you guys have just been the trilogy of this thing and watching it lay out and the conversations that we've had, I found out a lot about the show doing these conversations and, uh, it's just been, um, uh, my my relationship with the press was really leery at the beginning of the year, and I really uh, it's been a great it's been a great run on it, and you guys have been a big part of it. So thank you, and thank Andy, and tell him you know the fact that he wasn't here at the end is telling. Um, <laughs> you know, can't make uh, that last effort, but um, tell him the closing strong is really where it's at. He needs to work on that. Yeah, I'll mention it. I mean, it's, it, I'd be lying if I said that's not something I've told him before. So we'll, we'll see. It's something we're working on together. Tony, thank you so much for doing thank this. Thank you so much, man. Be well. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.